Hi, I'm Maddie, and I recently moved from North Dakota to North Carolina. Turns out the childhood ritual of putting your pencil in the freezer when we wanted a snow day works as an adult trying to get the student loan payment pause extended. This podcast was recorded at 3.15 p.m. on April 7th, 2022. Things may have changed by the time you hear this, but I'll still be waiting for my pencil to thaw. All right, here's the show. Is that a thing? I never heard of that. Moreover, who uses pencils? Bless your heart. Wow. <laughs> Does it, can, can it be mechanical? Does it have to, I, I, I have a lot of questions, but. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Hello there. It is the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. I cover demographics and culture. I'm Nina Totenberg. I cover the Supreme Court. And I'm Carrie Johnson, National Justice Correspondent. And it is a historic day. Ketanji Brown-Jackson will be the first black woman to serve on the nation's high court. She was confirmed by the Senate in a vote this afternoon. All 50 people who caucused with the Democrats voted for her. And they were joined by three Republicans, Senators Mitt Romney of Utah, Susan Collins of Maine, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. As we said, this was a historic moment. It was the fulfillment of a campaign promise that Joe Biden made when he was running for president. Vice President Kamala Harris was presiding in the Senate chamber today. On this vote, the yeas are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. I just said this is a historic moment. We have the first black woman on the Supreme Court. I'm curious if you guys, just as experts on this, could reflect on how historic this is. I don't think I can put myself quite in the position of the way black women feel today about this nomination and this nominee now confirmed justice to be. But I do recall what it felt like when Sandra Day O'Connor was named as the first woman to the court at all. And I'd been covering all men for quite a while already. And every woman I knew, regardless of their political views, just was thrilled by this nomination. It was such a special moment. Every woman I knew felt just had goosebumps. And I imagine that especially today, black women feel that way. You know, I've seen some video of of women's groups who were in uh, meeting rooms watching this Senate vote and the sense of jubilation, the sense of joy, the dancing (laughs) to some extent that I saw, the taking of the selfies. I mean, it was a a really happy (laughs) moment. And the other thing that I would say is this. One of the main things that I will remember forever from these confirmation hearings was uh, now Justice Jackson's um, memory of being a new student at Harvard where it was very cold. She had grown up in Miami and she was having a very a sad moment in her first year with the transition. And she said she was sitting on the steps, I think, of the library at Harvard, just in despair, covered with a, a scarf and a hat and kind of in, in a, a state of sadness. And someone who uh, worked at the college or somebody affiliated with Harvard College walked by, another black woman looked at her and said, persevere. And today, Danielle and Nina, I am seeing those words everywhere, superimposed with Katanji Brown-Jackson's picture or artwork of her. That is going to become something that is um, really a relic of this historic moment. 
And also, this is the most bipartisan Supreme Court confirmation there's been since Neil Gorsuch. It's what counts as bipartisan these days. Three Democrats voted for Gorsuch in 2017. And as I said, three Republicans voted for Jackson today. How did the tenor of these hearings, this confirmation process, compare to other recent confirmations? Uh, Nina, let's start with you. Well, we have to exclude, first of all, the Kavanaugh hearings, for example, or mm-hmm. uh, uh, Justice Thomas's second round of confirmation hearings. So you really have to look at the hearings as they're supposed to be about the nominee without some scandalous thing coming to the fore that has to be looked at. And if you do that, I think it's fair to say that Judge Jackson was treated by some Republicans, not all, but some, without much respect. I don't think you could say that she was treated respectfully. And that may redound to their benefit in some political ways and their unbenefit in other ways. But in the end, I think her sort of stoicism and uh, sitting through basically almost 25 hours of questioning uh, worked to her benefit, and she came out looking like she had integrity, judicial temperament, and clearly she has experience, and it served her well. The notion that that President Biden had picked somebody who wasn't qualified, that really never that was not cream that rose to the top ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie, what were your takeaways from these hearings? You know, we, we sat, Nina and I and, and other of our colleagues, through almost all of those 25 hours of questions and answers. And this is a nominee, now a, now a confirmed uh, justice, um, who, um, who has not yet been sworn in, but a woman who has clerked at every level, level of the federal judiciary, who had a record of something like nearly 600 rulings, and they spent very little time very little time talking about her actual record. I was really struck today by an op-ed by Anita Hill, the law professor who knows from mistreatment uh, by the Senate Judiciary Committee, talking about how the treatment of Judge Jackson, in her view, was shameful, and that even though she rose above it, like Nina said, it was a very uh, dark moment for some of the senators and a sign that the process is broken, perhaps irreparably. The other thing that really struck me today is that uh, Mitch McConnell, in an interview with Axios, basically refused to answer whether, uh, if he controlled the Senate in 2023, whether any possible nominee for President Biden to the Supreme Court would even get a hearing. That is also a dark sign for where we may be headed in the future. Okay, you've both gotten at this this notion of political theater being a big part of these hearings. And that is something we should acknowledge here is that this process is really frustrating. I mean, on the one hand, it's important to learn about the nominee. But on the other hand, there is so much grandstanding that goes on during these hearings. So I'm curious about what you think. To what degree do you both think these hearings are useful at this point? The moments of real dialogue were few and far between. We had a really good extended dialogue about uh, the the limits and the scope of the Fourth Amendment in the information age, which I would have loved to have heard more about. I would have loved to have heard more in these hearings about the tension between uh, religious liberty and a number of uh, civil rights statutes that keep keep coming up before the court and are going to keep coming up moving forward in the next 20 or 30 years. But those were just tiny nuggets, not anything 
nothing extensive the way that some of these hearings used to be 20 and 30 years ago. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we will have more in a second. And we're back. And Katanji Brown-Jackson is replacing a man she clerked for, Stephen Breyer, who was known for an apolitical conception of the court. That's a conception that was based on differences in philosophy rather than political ideology. And I know you know this, Nina. He said this much in a conversation with you on this podcast last year. But at this moment, Jackson is joining the court. That doesn't really line up with how the country sees the court. Our country is sharply partisan. And the conservative majority is taking up really, really hot-button issues. So what sense do we have of how Jackson sees that distinction between philosophy and political ideology? Where does she fall on that spectrum? Well, we don't know yet. (laughs) That's one of the fun parts about covering the Supreme Court. But I think you could say realistically that anytime one member of the court leaves That's one-ninth of the court that's gone and replaced by somebody entirely different. So you can't predict how this is all going to shake out. The one thing I think you can be reasonably certain of is that there is and will remain a conservative supermajority on the court, meaning that there are five votes. They don't even need a sixth, but they have a sixth. They have one to play with if they want. And there will be three moderate to more liberal liberals. And that's not going to change with this nomination. Mm -hmm. Well, and since, as you say, the ideological balance of the court won't be changing, with that in mind, are there particular issues where we should expect her to make her mark? Carrie, I'm curious, you brought up the Fourth Amendment earlier. Yeah, I think that um, on these issues of criminal law, she's poised to make a, a potentially big difference, if not always winning in the majority, then at least raising issues that might not have been raised without her presence. She, of course, is the first former public defender to be elevated to the Supreme Court. She has lots of experience working on criminal cases and criminal appeals. And she sat on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, which makes sentencing policy and uh, for the uh, entire country, advised sentencing policy for judges. So she's got a really in and out nuts and bolts view of criminal law. So far, Justice Sotomayor, who used to be a prosecutor, has been pretty sensitive to some of these issues. But I think that a, a new Justice Jackson could bring a, could bring a fresh approach and potentially in some areas, maybe maybe pick off a conservative mm-hmm. or two to go to her side. All right. Final question. uh, Basic question. When does Jackson formally take her seat? And do we know what kind of issues we might get to see her initially weigh in on? Well, she'll take her seat probably at the end of June or beginning of July when Justice Mm -hmm. Breyer steps down at the end of the term. The docket is already partly set for next year, and the court has already taken two very big controversial issues. One is affirmative action in higher education, and she indicated at the hearing that she would recuse herself from the Harvard case because she was on the Harvard Board of Overseers. So she said she would view that as a conflict of interest uh, because Harvard's one of the defendants, as it were, on this issue. But there is a a separate defendant, and that is uh, the University of North Carolina. And so she might conceivably participate in the North Carolina case, but not the Harvard case. And then there's a case involving when and whether states under civil rights laws can require everybody, every business, to serve everyone, including LGBTQ people, if if the owner of the business thinks that's a violation of their 
religious rights. That's a big deal. Yeah, that's going to be a big one. And I'm also watching this Alabama case involving redistricting and and voting rights. The court, the Supreme Court and the lower federal courts have been um, very, very hostile to the Voting Rights Act in recent years. And and that could be another uh, dark day for voting rights advocates next term. All right. Well, a lot of stuff that we will be watching and reporting on here. Until then, uh, thanks to the both of you. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. I cover demographics and culture. I'm Nina Totenberg. I cover the Supreme Court. I'm Carrie Johnson, National Justice Correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 